Welcome to the FI Podcast, the place where we speak about all things accounting. I'm Dave Malthouse. And I'm Ben Bournemouth. From balancing the books to finding a balance in your life, we've got it all covered. So whether you're here for accounting insights, career advice, or looking after yourself while preparing for your exams, you're in the right place. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please leave us a rating and review. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the FI Student Podcast. My name's Ben Bullman. I'm joined again this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Hello, Dave. Hi there, Ben. Um, how is how's life with you? I see you're in Cambridge. We're not obviously together tonight. We are meeting uh, meeting virtually, but I can see the Cambridge skyline behind you. Um, how is life, as I say, in the north of England from where I am? Um, life is good. I have to say I'm struggling slightly with a cold this week. So apologies, listeners, if I sound a bit snuffly. I will try to, to stop coughing live on the, the pod. I've had two days of teaching and I'm sure you'll be like this, Dave. When I'm teaching, I think adrenaline kicks in and you manage to get through your classes. But then at the end of the day, if you are under the weather, it really hits you. And then I've had a day today in the office, but not teaching. And I'm, I'm feeling a bit jaded at the end of the day. I know exactly what you mean, Ben. I, I know that when when I was full-time teaching before I kind of moved and started doing a bit of management work and client management work and things like that, it would always be the case that I would be feeling a little bit ill as we went into that really busy revision session just behind the, just before the session-based exams. And I would hold off that illness. And I think it's purely on the strength of the adrenaline that flows through you when you are teaching and, and as soon as the students sat down to take their exams, I would suddenly just sit down and get very, very ill indeed. So I'm not convinced it's a good thing that your body's able to do that. I think your body should, probably should be allowed to be ill and to recover naturally. But it is amazing what a bit of adrenaline does for you and that kind of showmanship when you're on stage at the front of the class does to help fight off illness and disease. We quite often see things in the news and as tutors, we try to relate them back to things that we teach in the classroom because it's helpful to have illustrations and it really does bring things to life if you can revert it back to real life stories. Dave, have you seen this one that's been on the, the BBC News and other news apps recently? We talk about sequentially numbering and we talk lots about systems and controls to prevent effectively paying the wrong person. Yep. I've seen the the bit of a pickle that Marvel Studios have got into. No, I have not, Ben. Can you tell me more? So you talk a lot about Marvel superheroes, and the one that my daughters really love is Tom Holland. Spider-Man. Yep. yep. So Tom Holland, apparently, in his contract with Marvel, gets an extra bonus based on box office results, which presumably takes a while to process, so he's paid it in arrears. He's paid it after, effectively, yep. they've earned the bonus. So I think it was a million dollars. It would be dollars because it's coming from America. And he was due to receive his next bonus paycheck for a million dollars for however the latest Spider-Man film has been doing in the cinemas. But Marvel Studios actually paid his million pound bonus, not to Tom Holland, but to another actor called Tom Hollander who you will probably recognise if you don't know who Tom Hollander is. I've seen him in a BBC sitcom called Rev, where he plays a vicar. But he's obviously also been somewhere with the same agency or the same studio. So he was on the payroll and he received a million dollars into his bank account in error. 
that that's lovely um was he able to keep it then um, I, I wouldn't have thought so he he has admitted to it so I'm pretty sure he paid it back um but it's just a bit embarrassing for a big multinational business to make such a fundamental error in their payroll we teach all the way back at level two to number and sequentially number so actually on the payroll it would have been better to have a number than a name because names can get muddled up I imagine though for, in the defense of the multinational um multinational company those kind of bonuses are only going to be attached to big movies yeah because small movies are unlikely to have bonuses for box office attached to them that would be of any real value each studio is probably only going to have maybe five or six very very big movies a year maybe not even that many so if you think marvel marvel will have maybe three movies a year and yep. it would only be the top stars that would get some kind of box office award. Most others would be paid a relatively small salary. So uh, I guess they'd be thinking, what's the problem with having the named actor? Because we're not going to confuse Robert Downey Jr. with Tom Holland because they're quite different names and spellings. And I guess they didn't think if, that payment then has to be made through an agency or, or something like that, that there could be that kind of confusion. But I'm sure it's not the first time that someone's been paid a large amount of money in error under the, the mistaken assumption that they were someone else. Just a reminder to everybody in our world, particularly to just double check the names. It's the sort of thing with emails that I get really paranoid about that you start typing somebody's first name and computers try to help us by them filling in the gaps and automatically predicting who I might want to be emailing. That can be incredibly dangerous, guys, can't it? Mm. And check your own payslip just in case you've been paid your boss's salary this month. <laughs> can you imagine just looking, going to the cash point, putting in your, your debit card to check your balance and suddenly your bank balance had gone up by a million pounds unexpectedly? Yeah, I think I, I would be really scared if that happened. <laughs> I'll be thinking, you know, where, where's the hidden camera that's trying to catch me out here? So, as always, we've got a theme for tonight's podcast. It has been suggested we do one, and this is a very big topic, but covering blockchain and its uses within finance particularly. Dave, I would like to start by asking you to as simply as possible tell us what you understand blockchain to be okay so first thing is that blockchain has got so many things that we associate with it and we think of the things that we associate with it rather than thinking about what blockchain itself actually is and i think before we go any further at all because i know we're going to move to cryptocurrency fairly quickly the we are in no way investment experts. We in no way are endorsing any kind of investment. Um, and, you know, this is purely from the perspective of finance. So anything that we say shouldn't cause anyone to buy or sell anything. And if you do want investment advice, there are lots of very reputable people you can go to. But you shouldn't uh, you certainly shouldn't be listening to this show to try and get rich. Really, we're here to try and help you to get through an accountancy exams and the the themes around blockchain and its and its associated applications are 
things that are touched upon in some of the professional exams. So it is something that we're starting to see a little bit of. But blockchain technology is actually quite old. It, it's been around for well over 30 years. Um, it's something that wasn't widely adopted until more recently. So the idea really around blockchain technology is that it's a store of information. And whereas traditionally we may store our electronic information on a computer, so on your laptop, you could store your information on the hard drive. And it's relatively easy to go into that store of information and change the data. So it's very easy for you to open a Word document and edit that Word document and then save it and make a change. Very easy for you to open Excel and change some numbers and save it and that store changes. With blockchain, the idea is that I have a copy of the data, Ben, you have a copy of the data, someone else has a copy of the same data and it constantly checks with each other. So if one person changes the data, then instantly your data source doesn't agree with everyone else's. So the information saved on what we call the blockchain, this chain of information, it's very easy to spot if someone's tried to change it. And the data should always remain consistent with each other because that one that's tried to change it instantly, that's the outlier. And everyone else keeps that consistent data that's unable to be changed. So blockchain is really a very secure way of storing data we refer to it sometimes as decentralized so you don't have a central store of data you have many different people that are helping to store that data i think the challenge historically was always how are you going to incentivize people to be able to be parts of that storage because if i've got a copy you've got a copy ben we want another 100 people to have a copy to make sure that everything is consistent. How do you open that network up so people will actually do it? And that's why we didn't really see much in the way of blockchain technology actually operating, probably for a good 20 years after it was first, the idea of it was first kind of put forward. And so what do you think over the last 20 years has meant this has become, and I'm not saying it's mainstream, but much more in the mainstream conscience? The, the big application that has really enabled blockchain to, to be used is cryptocurrency. Um, and the one that we all probably know about is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is the, the first type of cryptocurrency that really was embraced by a large enough group of people to make their blockchain viable. So before we get into the different kinds of uses... Let's think about some of the potential features and how they are actually supportive of things that we would want a financial system to do. So as much as I know about blockchain, when I see it in our textbooks and in our notes, it very often refers to it being an audit trail, a ledger that gives us a effective history of a chain of transactions is 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 that a good way to think about it think about links being added to a chain for every step in a a transaction or a process yes yeah absolutely so record you can use a blockchain to record series of transactions absolutely with within any any kind of transaction could be recorded there um say 
cryptocurrency is one that's been is one that's brought into the mainstream. But in theory, you could use it to record accounting data, and it would mean that your accounting data is very difficult for someone to go back and manipulate without awareness of it arising because your record disagrees to everyone else's. So putting my auditor's hat on, I'm liking the sound of this. I like the thought of an audit trail, a permanent record that is very hard, if not impossible, to actually go back and change without having it stand out and actually flag up as a, as a, a changed error. It obviously requires computers because these blocks build and build and build. Is it downloaded to a computer or is it all stored virtually? You, If you are one of the nodes on the blockchain, then yes, you will be storing data on your computer um, and you'll be storing data that you're able to check with other people. Um, in terms of actually setting up a blockchain or being part of it, I've never personally been part of it myself. I've never opened up my computer to doing it. So I'm not entirely sure about what kind of data requirement I would actually have to have in order to be part of it. So let's talk about cryptocurrency because you've mentioned it already. Straight away in our world of accounting and finance, we hear the word currency and associate that with money. So in a simplistic world, are we seeing cryptocurrency as a kind of money? It depends. If we think about what the purpose of money is it, it, it is for, what why we have money, we have money as effectively a store of wealth that allows us to be able to go and buy sell stuff and sell stuff. And, and it's effectively a token that we can use to go into a shop and buy something or a token that we can use to receive payment for goods that someone gives us. Now, you can argue the cryptocurrency does that. It's possible to use Bitcoin to purchase things. It's possible to receive Bitcoin in exchange for selling something. I would argue, is it mainstream enough that everyone out there could use Bitcoin today? I'm not convinced that it is mainstream enough to do that. It's only a few specialist use cases, really. There are some people that will accept Bitcoin, but not very many. My mum would never pay me in Bitcoin. You know, my nan would never use Bitcoin. So I, I, I think thinking of it as a currency that can be used to buy stuff, I think it's a little bit of a stretch right now. Um, I think a lot of people are speculating on the value of it and its future possible use cases, but whether it will be usable as a currency in the future. But right now... I wouldn't go as far as to call it, yes, it's a full-on currency that can be used like dollars or euros or pounds. And you've mentioned Bitcoin, which is yes. equivalent to a brand name, I suppose, isn't it? It is a brand of cryptocurrency. But I guess the issue is for anybody selling something, they either accept Bitcoin or an alternative cryptocurrency, and this becomes yep. a much wider issue i think when we were doing some research earlier i've seen um website articles say that there could be up to an over nine thousand different kinds of cryptocurrency bitcoin being just one of them 
Now, yeah. I guess I guess Bitcoin's got traction because I think it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, cryptocurrency. But in- it's, it's certainly the one that's been been around the longest in terms of public awareness. Um, it's the first that I'm aware of that really started to get noise and usage around it. So it, it, it was created by a, a, a figure that very, very few people know about or know who the person is. And there are people that actually have got a theory that he never actually existed. Um, so we don't know much about the person that created the idea of Bitcoin. It was something that I think computer nerds really kind of got together to use and thought it was a little bit of fun. And I did hear stories about people kind of spending 20 Bitcoin to buy a pizza, um, transferring it to a friend who then went to go and buy a pizza when it had very, very low valuations. Um, it is something that was adopted by um, by people that were carrying out, say, illegal transactions. Um, and you did find that because of the anonymity that surrounds using um, Bitcoin, it was quite a secure way of receiving cash electronically for some kind of illegal transaction. Um, I think because of that growth and that usage, that propelled it to be a bit more mainstream, and then more and more people started kind of jumping on the bandwagon of thinking, oh, this is the next big thing in terms of currency and I want to get there early. So it, it grew over a period of time. Um, I think the first time I was aware of Bitcoin, the value of a Bitcoin was about $500 each. Um, it's certainly a lot more than that now. And I think you'll fill us in with some current valuations, Ben. Um, but I think lots of people have jumped on it for investment purposes. And anyone that has done that over the last few years has been in a a roller coaster of gains and losses. Um, it, it is an investment that I would consider to be extremely high risk. So uh, we normally talk about investments in company shares being risky, but this is yeah many many times more risky than investing in equities. Um, it, you've got an, uh, you've got a, a currency whose valuation can fluctuate quite easily up or down 10% a day. It's quite easy to look back at graphs and look at situations where 30, 40, 50% of the total valuation is wiped out over a very short period of a few weeks. So it's anyone that's been in that area, I mean, you. I think you must go through incredible stress um, with an investment that that is that risky. Um, it's definitely not something that, that I would endorse people doing. As I say earlier, there are very good financial advisors out there that will give you advice and will help to advise you if you do need investment um, investment advice. But as a cryptocurrency is not one that I've seen many of them advocate using. So I think just to put a bit more context on it, 2008 is the date that I found for effectively the launch of Bitcoin. Now, I know to some of us that seems like a long time ago, but in the the history of accounting and finance, this is very, very recent from that perspective. You've touched on really the, the, the two uses, investment. And I think the thing that attracts people initially, when I've looked at graphs online today, I see it going up 
but I also see it coming down, but I see some, some pretty big numbers attached. Can also be used for transactions, but as you say, not routine. I've been over to Tesco's to buy some wine gums before we came on air, and I don't think they would have accepted Bitcoin. But looking online, the likes of PayPal do, so you can use Bitcoin to finance your PayPal activity. Microsoft do. And I guess the bigger brand names that have then started saying we accept Bitcoin only go further to legitimize it and drive up the value. Is that something that we would expect to to spike the value of a Bitcoin if a large household name comes out and says we would now accept it? Yeah, we saw that with Tesla. So Tesla a few years ago said that they would accept Bitcoin to purchase their vehicles. The price of Bitcoin did increase. Tesla then said, we're not going to accept Bitcoin and started selling off their stock of Bitcoin. And as a result of the announcement of that happening, Bitcoin saw a big price fall. So you're absolutely right. I think if you've got a uh, an organization that is going to be using a cryptocurrency, you may well see the price going up. Um, I really wouldn't want to second guess that, though, because all, all it would take is, you know, if Nike came out and said, we are never going to accept Bitcoin, I imagine the price is going to plummet. You know, if Coca-Cola says, yes, we're going to accept it, it's going to go up. I really wouldn't want, you know, the value of the things that I own to be susceptible to companies making decisions like that. So regular listeners will know I'm quite a, a simple chap and I was thinking up some simple questions that actually I didn't know the answer to this morning until I had a jump with Dave earlier on today and we did a bit of looking online. So Dave, the, the first thing I saw when I looked at the graph was the value of a Bitcoin today. We're recording this at the end of January 2024 and I found the value of one Bitcoin today is £33,642. So I'm thinking one Bitcoin, that's a heck of a lot of money. I am not going to be able to go out and buy a Bitcoin. And my naivety today was, well, actually, how can I even use that for transactions? Unless I'm buying something for £33,642 sterling equivalent, I'm not going to be able to spend Bitcoin on it because I won't get any change, if that makes sense. Um, but you can get smaller denominations, can't you? Absolutely. So you could buy fractions of all cryptocurrencies that I'm aware of. Um, and it goes down to many, many decimal places. So you can have, I want to buy 0.00003 Bitcoin. Um, virtually every amount of pounds that you could think of, you can express as an amount of money in terms of Bitcoin right now. So if you wanted to buy 10 pounds, or spend £10, you could spend £10, there'd be an equivalent amount of Bitcoin that equates to £10 worth of value. Yeah, when I did some research earlier, we found out that they break Bitcoin down into 100 million subunits. Each one of those is called a Satoshi. And I worked out one of those is currently equivalent to 0.03 pence. So that means there are lots of denominations of transactions you can actually do in Bitcoin. You don't have to have £33,000 sitting around to be able to go and... Um, you don't have £33,000 sitting around, Ben? Sadly, no. And, and I have to say, going back to what you said, if I did, I probably wouldn't be investing in Bitcoin currently because I don't know enough about it. And I think, as you say, it is a very high-risk strategy. But if I did, my next question was, what, what would I get... If I went and bought Bitcoin, 
what yep. would I actually get to show that I owned it? Um, in order to buy any cryptocurrency, you have to have what's referred to as a digital wallet. Now, you can either have a digital wallet, which is effectively your own, which is your own unique kind of ID or reference number where your money is allocated to or your, your coins are allocated to, or you can do it through a third party. So you can do it through a, a third party where they will have a digital wallet with a hold cryptocurrency on your behalf. So either one of those two, uh, two are methods that you can use to hold your digital currency. And then my understanding is you get granted a private key, which mm -hmm. is your ability to effectively access the block the blockchain yep. for that cryptocurrency yep yeah absolutely so you have a unique key and if you lose that key as far as i'm aware there is no way of being able to retrieve that key so you it, it, you can't kind of have a i've forgotten my password please give me a hint and this is where today when we were having a chat it opens a pandora box because you just keep asking questions and finding out more stuff that threw up two things that I found. The first one was, and, and go and find this, you can Google this, it's on the BBC website, but by all accounts, there is currently a hard drive in a landfill in Newport in Wales, which somebody threw away. That hard drive actually contains the private key for 7,500 bitcoins. Do the maths on that, Dave, because we just said one Bitcoin was currently worth the equivalent of £33,600. We're thinking that is well over £200 million worth of Bitcoin, which exists but can't be transferred or exchanged because you need the private key to be able to transfer it to somebody else. Yeah, and I've I've heard people be very critical of cryptocurrency on this that basis that... In the same way, Ben, that you've probably lost some coins down the back of the sofa and you've you found them when you kind of get your hoover out to clean them. But it's very difficult to find that with a, a digital encrypted password that you've forgotten or that's been wiped off your hard drive or something like that. And for the fact that there is a limited amount of Bitcoin that exists, some of that Bitcoin is going to be lost already and will never, ever be found. And more of that is going to happen over that period of time. Second thing that this threw up was, well, if I did go out and buy some, I could store the private key. Hopefully, I would keep that safe, know where to access it. So if I did want to exchange it, cash it in, sell it, I could do. But if anything happened to me, what would happen to the Bitcoin? Um, I don't want to <laughs> predict... At some point, I'm on this earth will, will end. And something I know that, that we have to teach, and it's a, a, a sad subject when somebody dies, but we always think about it in the classroom perspective from, well, inheritance tax. They own assets. Bitcoin would be an asset. Um, it goes into your estate for inheritance tax purposes, Dave. I think you looked that up earlier. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a financial asset. It has a value. And at the point at which you die, it will form part of your death estate and it'll be transferred to whoever the beneficiaries of your estate are. And it will be subject to inheritance tax in the way that any 
asset that has value will be subject to inheritance tax. It, it's also been, um, it, it also attracts capital gains tax when you sell it in the same way that any asset would attract capital gains tax when you sell it. If you are one of the people that understands uh, about things like mining Bitcoin and actually effectively creating new individual units of Bitcoin, that's subject to income tax. So it, it's taxed in the same way that you would expect anything to be taxed. Now, if you've generated some kind of income through your trade, you'd expect to be taxed as an income tax. If you have bought something, held it as an investment and sold it and made a gain, you'd expect to pay capital gains tax. And yes, it's subject to inheritance tax in exactly the same way. So I did see this piece of advice on a, a solicitor's website today when I was looking that they are now advising people if you own cryptocurrency to make sure those private keys are contained within your will or stored at a solicitor. So in the event of your death, the private key can actually be transferred to somebody else. It's not like having money in a traditional bank where going through probate, the bank will release those funds to the people that you bequeath the money to. There's no bank with cryptocurrency. You rely on the private key being transferred by the individual. Next, next question. Um, I'm aware of the concept of something that governments and um, institutional banks call quantitative easing. So this was something that really caught my attention during the last financial crisis and coming out of it, where governments and national banks, if they want to stimulate the economy or change the, the value of their currency or protect the value of their currency, can actually go and print more money. We are used to having cash, although there is talk about us increasingly using less cash as a society. But if you go and look at a £10 note, there is a promise on that from the Bank of England that anybody bearing holding that note will receive the equivalent of £10 sterling. And if the Bank of England wanted to, they can go and print more notes. They can take notes out of circulation. My and maybe naive concern about cryptocurrency was, well, if I go and buy some Bitcoin, what's to stop more Bitcoin being released in the future that then means the value of Bitcoin comes down because if there's more of them, they will be worth less. I guess there's two things there, Ben. First of all, depends on the cryptocurrency, but some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have got a finite number of coins that can ever be issued. Now, at the moment, there is still Bitcoin that hasn't been issued. And as I understand it, you can earn Bitcoin by a process that's called mining, where you get your computer to process, all I'm going to say is hard sums. And as a reward for solving a hard problem, you get awarded a Bitcoin. Now, some other people are also going to be mining for the same Bitcoin and they may get there before you. So it's not guaranteed you're ever going to earn it. Um, I believe most people that do it seriously are doing it with huge volumes of computing power. Um, so that, that that's what Bitcoin would do. They would have a finite supply of coins that will at some point all be out there and issue. Some cryptocurrencies are set up so that they will be releasing the same amount of cryptocurrency pretty much forever. And so there will be a constant releasing of cryptocurrency and I think the theory behind that is some of it will be lost on the way, so they need to keep replacing to make sure they have a, a, a steady supply of cryptocurrency. Um, 
But regardless, what you don't have is you don't have a central bank like the one you described. So you don't have a central bank that's there saying, well, we need to restrict supply to calm down demand. So we're going to reduce the supply of money by taking money out of the system. And in theory, you could have that. If you had the US government was in charge of Bitcoin, you could have the US government saying, we're going to buy a load of Bitcoin to reduce the numbers out there to keep the value at a certain level. And then if it started bubbling up a little bit, they could release some of their reserve supply. But we don't have that. And, and I think deliberately by design, cryptocurrencies are designed to be independent of countries, to be independent of central banks. So it would be very difficult to have that kind of quantitative easing or quantitative restrictions that, that you describe if we were living in a world that was based on the cryptocurrencies we currently have. You mentioned about cryptocurrency not having a central bank. And that, that's seen as one of the advantages, as well as a potential thing to be aware of. But some countries, I understand, are adopting cryptocurrencies as their national currency. Yeah, we have got um, two countries um, who have adopted, or sorry, there are two countries that have, have accepted that cryptocurrency, and I believe Bitcoin is the one they've selected, is a currency one of those countries has effectively adopted it as their currency, which I believe is El Salvador, if memory serves then. Um, now, I don't know how that works because I, I just think that I can't think of a country in the world where there still isn't a place that cash is used. You know, my nan still likes to have money in her wallet. You know, she still likes to have coins in her purse that she can use. And I can't believe there's a country in the world where that they don't want some kind of cash. So I don't quite get how, if your national currency is Bitcoin, but what do you use for those day-to-day -day transactions in terms of cash? Yeah, I've, I've got, got visions now of people in El Salvador being paid Bitcoin for their wages, but presumably they're not. Um, yeah. Well, well, they are, and they, 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 they go into their, their, their wallet, but then they have some kind of cash point that allows them to draw out cash in a local currency that they can use in shops or whatever and it takes it from their bitcoin wallets i don't know i i suppose we've said the risks associated with it and clearly when you look at the graph it is not stable but it's possibly more stable than than some currencies around the world so you, you pays your money you takes your choice there i suppose with with that one the next thing I started to look at was financial reporting treatment of cryptocurrency because my my brain and my specialism in the classroom, or one of them, is financial reporting. So I was thinking, right, if a, if a business, if a company went out and actually bought some cryptocurrency, where in their accounts would they put it? And the first place I would normally go is to say, well, is there an accounting standard, an international financial reporting standard that tells a company... This is what you do with it. This is where you put it. This is how you value it. And actually, cryptocurrency is one of the things where we haven't got a specific accounting standard for it. Now, whether over time one will be written and one will come into fruition, I don't know. But when we haven't got a specific standard for something, we then need to do two things. We need to go back to what we call the conceptual framework. So these are the underlying principles that 
effectively underpin the way the standards are written and tell us what things are. And we should also look at other IFRS standards to see if there is anything that is similar that we could maybe associate with it. So I started doing this exercise earlier. Would you agree with me, Dave, that if we went out and bought some cryptocurrency, we would have an asset? My gut feel is yes. I'm just thinking back to my days of what's the definition of an asset, but I'm sure you're one step ahead of me. But my gut feel is I bought something. My, my general rule is, have I bought something that has value still? Yes, it clearly does have value because there's a market value for it. I could convert it into pounds if I wanted to. So that to me sounds like it should qualify as an asset, but I'm sure you're going to tell me the real inside story. Brilliant. Well, you would be right. I would be classing it as an asset. We look at a few things to make an asset an asset. The first thing is, does the business have control over it? And yes, we do. We control it. We can sell it. We can transfer it. We can exchange it for money. We've obtained it from a past event. So we've had to be the last block in the blockchain for the crypto. We've acquired it before our financial reporting period. And the most important thing is it has the potential to provide future economic benefit because when we sell it or transfer it, we can get cash, traditional money, or goods to the equivalent value of what it's valued at at that time. So tick number one, we're going to be putting it in our accounts as an asset. The next logical thing to think about is, well, currency, if it was pound sterling, we'd be putting that in our current assets on the line for cash at bank. Yep. But when we look at our international accounting standard, if you want to know the number, Dave, it's IAS7. One of my favorites, Ben. IAS7 tells us for us to put it as, as cash at bank, it needs to be short term. We could argue crypto could be short term because we could effectively exchange it tomorrow has to be highly liquid. Well, you would argue, yeah, you probably could exchange it for money pretty quickly. If I've got some cryptocurrency, I could go to an exchange tonight and effectively sell it for money. But it has to be subject to insignificant risk of changes in value. This comes back to a bit of stability about the currency. And so actually, it wouldn't be treated as cash or cash equivalents in our accounts. The next thing we would think about is, well, is it a financial instrument? If this was shares that we bought and as an investment, we would say we'll treat this as a financial instrument. But unfortunately, although we can sell it, there is no legal right that means we get any money back for our cryptocurrency investment whatsoever. Usually when we buy shares we have got a contract that says that company will pay us a dividend. There is an obligation for them to pay us money. Or if we go and buy bonds, I know one of your favorite talking about the bond market, yeah. I go and buy bonds, I've got a piece of paper that says I get money back. But there's no money obligation coming back. So it's not a financial instrument. It is classed as a non-monetary asset doesn't give me the right as the holder to a fixed number of units back in return. So it's a non-monetary asset. 
And when I think about non-monetary assets, I usually think, well, that either means it's in inventory, it's stock. And there could be a case for saying we could treat it as stock, but only if the business holds it as part of their normal course of trading business. So if I am a, a trader of Bitcoin, I could make a case for putting it in my accounts as inventory. But for most businesses, it wouldn't be their main trade. They might have done it as a, a bit of a, a speculative investment. It would certainly be classed as intangible in its substance. It is not physical. It is without physical substance. So all of the reading I've done says most likely we would treat it under IAS 38 as an intangible asset. And that opens up a couple of final bits, which I will finish on for our financial reporting section. How long do you think a Bitcoin would last for, Dave? You mean if I owned a single Bitcoin, how long would that Bitcoin remain a Bitcoin before it was vanished into dust? Effectively, yes. Well, I've, I think the supporters of Bitcoin would say that that has an infinite life and it would live forever. I may have different views on that, but is that what you were looking for? Well, it was actually. Everything I've been seeing would say we would class it as having an indefinite useful life, mm -hmm. which means we wouldn't amortize it. We don't depreciate it. We don't effectively spread its cost. What we would have to do, though, is review it every year for impairment. And I think that's maybe where your brain was going. Just because something could last forever doesn't necessarily mean it will be worth something forever. So we would effectively have to value it every year. And if it reduced in value, we would have to write that off to our profit and loss account. On the flip side, if it goes up in value, that's what we would call an unrealized gain. So we would put that through a separate revaluation reserve. We couldn't put the gain through the profit and loss account until we actually sold it. There we go. Bit of financial reporting treatment for you. I mean, I, th I think, you know, ladies and gentlemen that are listening right now, that that is an absolute masterclass in how to determine the treatment of a transaction that you've never seen before. And as accountants, we see this when anything new happens, any new technology arises, you know, any new type of financial transaction that arises. The international financial reporting standards aren't updated, you know, as soon as those changes happen. They're updated to reflect big changes that occur, and it takes a long, long time to get a new financial reporting standard issued. So, in normally in that issue, in that situation, we have to go to the framework. And I love the way you went through it, and you almost said these are all the things that this is not before you arrived at this is the thing that it is. And I could almost picture, you know, in, in my brain, as you went through it, you were saying, first of all, I've established this must be an asset. So I'm going to start at the bottom of the assets bit of the statement of financial position. And that the at the bottom, you've got the most liquid type of, uh, of asset, which is cash. And then you've worked up in increasing levels of liquidity until you're getting virtually the, at the top of the statement of financial position or balance sheet depending on how you want to talk about it. So um, I, I thought, yeah, absolute masterclass in how to tackle those questions. It's certainly when I was doing corporate reporting style of exams, 
that was always kind of my go-to to get out of trouble. If I came across something in an exam or a question that I didn't know how to treat, and I didn't re and maybe I didn't remember the financial reporting standard, it was go back to the framework. That and being able to write out T accounts to sketch out these are the bits of the transaction that I know, what's the missing bit, and then is it an asset? Is it a liability? If it is an asset, is it very liquid? Is it not as liquid and where to fit? So I, I I thought just to see you attack that question with your financial reporting brain, I think was amazing. For those of you who are listening, you can't see how excited Ben was getting as he was working his way up the state and the financial position. The benefits that we do most of these sessions with a live audience of students is we've got a chat box and they can share messages with me and Dave as we're recording the podcast. I'm not going to name her, but we've had one of our, our join us this evening say that they actually visited El Salvador in the summer, Dave, and they can confirm that at ATM cash machines, they do actually have the ability to kind of um, denominate transactions in Bitcoin. So I'm assuming they must still have some kind of tokens or notes that they use there and you're drawing from your Bitcoin account to convert it into those kind of tokens that you're using, whatever they are. It may be the the, ori the, the original currency of, of El Salvador that's used there. I'm, I'm In my ignorance, I'm not entirely sure what that is. I suppose it could be dollars that they're using. It could be US dollars because they're, they're in that in the Americas, so that quite a lot of countries do peg their currencies to the dollar anyway. Yeah, so I wonder at that point then if the government effectively takes back the Bitcoin and you get a token to the equivalent value that you can go and spend. Yeah. Uh, wow, interesting. Well, we, we are, Ben, I'm looking at time and we are rapidly hurtling towards our bedtimes. Um, I know that we did want to talk about non-fungible tokens and other applications of, of of blockchain. What I think we'll do, Ben, is we'll turn this into a two-parter and we'll record the second part in the next week or so. So uh, I think just, uh, I guess, you know, final notes on the application of block current, blockchain into cryptocurrency. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of in terms of cryptocurrency and you know where we go from here do you see this as being something that is a fad or do you see that there are real applications for it i think there are clearly some benefits that means people have started using it mm -hmm. and what benefits do you think there are there well the, the the initial benefit not that i would be using it as a criminal and and it does concern me slightly that there is an element of anonymity behind it Mm -hmm. that is quite attractive to people not just crooks that actually this is a way that that governments maybe can't necessarily be your big brother in what we're doing and we yeah. are not reliant on the decisions of people running a bank of a country for the, the 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 value of that currency i think clearly if it is having the ability to reduce fraud that would be a, a good thing from the evidence of transactions but I think my biggest concern is it still seems a bit like the Wild West with the over potentially 9,000 different cryptocurrencies out there. I think you found a couple today, didn't you, Dave, that are, are maybe not trading as, as well as Bitcoin currently? Um, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact there's 9,000 cryptocurrencies to me is crazy. You know, that's yeah, hundreds 
for each country in the world, isn't it? We're all getting close to. It's a huge number of, of currencies that are out there. Um, you're absolutely right. I found there is a Dave coin and there is also a Ben coin. So, you know, we, and they're, you know, not priced that highly, Ben. So we could quite easily get ourselves a load of Ben coins and Dave coins. I'm not convinced we're ever going to make any money from the Ben coin and the Dave coin. You also have cryptocurrencies that have been created for their purposes as part of a game. So someone's come up with a cryptocurrency. And you can imagine this. If you're a gamer in Call of Duty, and Call of Duty may have its own currency, and people might say, well, let's call this a cryptocurrency, and then you can buy and sell that currency. If you want to get ahead in the game, you buy more of the currency. And you can see that computer games already have this kind of electronic type of currency, but having it as a cryptocurrency that can be bought and sold outside of the game may be quite attractive to some people. But a lot of these cryptocurrencies for games, the currency's been created, but the game surrounding it hasn't had anyone take it up. So you've got these cryptocurrencies people have bought thinking, oh, the game's going to be popular or go up in value, and the game's never taken off. So you've got thousands of these cryptocurrencies out there. You've got some that are just outright scams. So people have decided that they just want to fleece money from people. And I don't know if you've seen the, um, the excellent BBC podcast documentary about the crypto queen definitely worth a listen where you have got someone who for their own purposes wanted to create a fake cryptocurrency in order to embezzle money from other people so there are lots of people out there that have got an intent to uh, to deceive and to take money from people who are seeing a get rich quick scheme you've got cryptocurrencies that have gone through an old-fashioned pump and dump scheme where people talk up the value talk about them the value goes up other people buy in and then those people sell their cryptocurrency in order to make a big gain and then just leave it to plummet and for everyone to lose their money. So there's loads of kind of scams out there. There's loads of people that are trying to fleece you for money out there. Even the exchanges where you can buy them have not been intercepted. So we saw at the beginning part of last year, FTX, which was one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges, collapsed because there was widespread fraud that was taking place. It's not the first of the exchanges to have collapsed. So it feels to me, as you say, it's like the Wild West out there. You know, we know that there are cryptocurrencies that have been around for longer. Um, but, you know, my, my thoughts on it are that it's a technology that's very much in its infancy. I do think we will have electronic currencies and uh, and i think that the um the convenience of being able to manage your currency transactions through your mobile phone across any border you want to so going to any country in the world and paying with your cryptocurrency using your mobile phone transferring money to people for goods and services wherever you are is a huge convenience you wouldn't have you don't have bank charges you don't have bank fees in order to do it so it should be cheaper to do that for everyone in the world. I can see huge benefits. However, when you look at any technology that's blown up over the last few years, and you know, if I, I'm going to name a few kind of types of technology, and the first of all is music streaming. So who right now would you say are the biggest brands in music streaming? So I use Apple. Yeah, I use Apple. But I'm also aware of Spotify. Yep. This podcast is available on Spotify. It's it's a fantastic platform. Um, any others? 
probably Amazon Music. They would be the, the three I would. Great. Ab- absolutely right. They're the three I would think of. If I go back 20 years when streaming music was very much in its infancy, the only brand people knew was Napster. And Napster are nowhere now. So you, know, you could argue that you know the biggest in the beginning isn't always going to be the one that's actually successful longer term. So, you know, is is Bitcoin today, you know, Napster? And are we going to have some new cryptocurrencies in the future that are actually going to be the ones that go mainstream? You know, I, I also look at it with social media. Right now, biggest social media brands in the world. You've got kind of Instagram as part of Meta, Facebook, that lot. You've got things like Snapchat. You've got things like TikTok. If I go back 15, 20 years, you know, Bebo and MySpace. So is, you know, are, are you know, uh, Bitcoin, the other big cryptocurrency we talk about at the moment is one called Ethereum. You know, it is is Bitcoin MySpace, is Ethereum Bebo, and are we going to have Instagram created in 10 years' time as the version of cryptocurrency that's actually going to break the mainstream? So this, for me, it's in its infancy. I'm not seeing it go mainstream yet. And I'm kind of watching with interest, but it's not something that I want to jump into, you know, because there's so much risk around it. I'm really interested in seeing where it goes, but I'd rather do it from the sidelines rather than jump in and, you know, think this is the one and then risk losing all of our money. And I suppose one of the ways risk is controlled and managed is regulation. Governments stepping yep. in and actually regulating things. Do, do you think we're going to see a bit more of that, actually, governments getting properly involved in cryptocurrency but then having some rules on them. I think the, the SEC in USA has been looking at it. It would be yes. the in council here. The, that's the Securities Exchange Commission in the US. You're absolutely right. I think last week or maybe the week before, so it's within this year of, you know, with Jan, end of January 2024, so um, have approved an exchange-traded fund that trades in cryptocurrency. I, I believe it's just, Bitcoin, but it may be slightly wider than that. Now, an exchange-traded fund is an investment vehicle that's run by big investment houses where they collect money from investors and they use that money to make investments. So my pension fund, Ben, has got a number of exchange-traded funds where I those exchange-traded funds pull money from loads of investors and they invest in stocks and shares of big global companies because that's where I've chosen to invest my pension funds. Um, you could choose to buy one of these exchange-traded funds in cryptocurrency. Um, and for me, I think the security there is that if I've got a you know a big trusted investment bank that's set up one of these funds, I'm pretty sure that they're going to remember the keys to my cryptocurrency. I'm pretty sure they're going to make sure that they correctly vet the platforms that they're buying and selling through. So, you know, they probably would have done a full vetting on FTX and decided not to use them to buy or sell cryptocurrency because they may not have their processes in place to be able to manage those things correctly. So the, the governments are putting things in place to, I think, protect the public. But if you're directly buying cryptocurrency yourself, at the moment, you have no protection whatsoever. You know, if it's fraud, then yes, you've got the police you could go to. But if you're buying a cryptocurrency that collapses in value and there's no fraud involved, you've lost all your money. 
it's not protected in the same way that other protect other investments would be protected by the Financial Conduct Authority. And and to finish with that one, I suppose the fact it's a fund means there is more scope for diversification. So we talk about this a lot in the world of financial management. Even if you invest money in a, a company that's maybe seen as more legitimate and regulated, if you've got all of your money invested in the shares of one company, you've got all of your eggs in one basket. So effectively spreading your investment around and doing that through a series of funds is certainly what I hope the person who is looking after the money in my pension is doing with that money at the moment. Yeah. And as we see in some of the advanced financial management papers, you've got very, very clever derivatives that you can use to hedge against massive falls in price. And we see that in the financial management papers at ACCA and ICW, where you can effectively buy options that will pay out in the event that your portfolio falls by a certain percentage. So everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to download. Please share the link for the FI podcast with your friends, with your colleagues, with your family. We were looking before we came on air tonight. We've got five-star reviews that we found on Apple Podcasts, but we would love some more. If you've got time, it won't take you more than 10 seconds. Please give us a review. Five stars would be lovely. This was part one. We're going to record a part two where we will look further at other uses of blockchain technology and how it might be relevant to you in the world of accounting and finance. Thank you all very much. <laughs>